From the World Economic Forum, I'm Beatrice DiCaro, and this is the Book Club Podcast. Today's author likes to quote an ancient Chinese proverb that says, A fish can't see water. It means that humans are often unaware of their own biases and assumptions, and that makes it extremely difficult to communicate effectively with others. And that's not just a problem for individuals, but for the world, the author says. Humans' built-in tunnel vision makes it very hard for us to collaborate on solving some of our biggest common threats. But she believes there is an antidote, as you'll hear. In this episode, we're joined by renowned Financial Times journalist Jillian Tett, author of the book Anthrovision, How Anthropology Can Explain Business and Life. In her book, Jillian explains how she used her anthropology training to predict global events from the 2008 financial crisis to the COVID-19 pandemic. She argues that in an era of global contagion, it's even more imperative we cultivate a mindset of empathy for strangers and value diversity, while also turning the lens back on ourselves and seeing our own weaknesses and blind spots. From tackling COVID-19 and climate change, to engaging with AI and hybrid working. What is the case for anthropology? And why does the world, and business in particular, need it right now? My colleague and fellow book aficionado, Kate Whiting, joins us to interview Jillian. So the kind of big question to kick off with, I guess, is what is the case for anthropology and why does the world and business in particular need it? The case for anthropology is incredibly simple, and it's this. As humans, we are all shaped by cultural assumptions that we inherit from our environment. Culture doesn't exist as boxes. It's a spectrum of difference. And one of the most important things we need to do in a world that's both globalized and polarized is recognize that the cultural assumptions we each inherit are very powerful. We usually don't recognize just how powerful they are in terms of how we behave and think, but they're different. And we can all benefit by trying to immerse ourselves into the lives and minds of others, not just to understand how different people think and what makes the world tick, but also so that we can then flip the lens and look back at ourselves with a lot more clarity. Because there's a wonderful Chinese proverb which says that a fish can't see water. We can't see our own cultural assumptions and biases and just how weird we might seem to others unless to go back to that fish metaphor, we jump out of our fishbowl, go and look at other fishbowls or ask other fish what they think about us and then look back at ourselves. And, you know, when we look at that wider cultural context, all the stuff we normally ignore, we begin to understand why using mere quantitative tools to navigate the world with, like corporate balance sheets or economic models or big data sets, simply isn't enough to capture the complexity, which is our cultural experiences today. You're saying we kind of need to have a mix of disciplines to approach these global problems so that you can't just have siloed, you know, social scientists and computer scientists and um, medical experts. It needs to be everybody working together. Do you kind of see that we'll have a greater interdisciplinary collaboration in future? Well, one of the central messages of this book is that anthropology isn't a magic wand to solve the world's problems. It actually is best used in collaboration with other disciplines like economic sciences, medical sciences, and other forms of computer science. And if there was anything that illustrates that point clearly, it's been the COVID-19 pandemic. 
because it's become very clear that you can't beat a pandemic just with medical science or big data or computer science. You need to combine it with social science to understand the cultures and behavioral patterns that shape how people do or don't behave during a pandemic. And that kind of metaphor is really not just limited to pandemics. It extends right across all the problems which we're facing today to do with things like climate change, income inequality, or both the promise and peril of big data and artificial intelligence. So my plea in the book really is to try and start blending these different disciplines. Now, the good news is that in some areas, there is evidence that this is happening. Ironically, if you go back to the Ebola epidemic in West Africa in 2014, which is a story that tragically most Western governments ignored in the early stages of COVID. But if you go back and look at that, you can see that after several months of trying and failing to beat the Ebola epidemic just through medical science, there was a shift in policy on the behalf of the World Health Organization and others to embrace more use of behavioral science. And that was really what got the Ebola epidemic controlled. You can argue that a similar process of learning has been happening with COVID-19. And although there wasn't enough use of behavioral science in the lockdowns, when it comes to the vaccination rollout, there is now a lot more appreciation of the need to blend these disciplines. But what's really needed now is to apply these same principles to climate change battles, to tech battles, AI, things like that. And there, there is some progress, but it's still very patchy. How can we use the lessons from anthropology to address climate mitigation? So it's both systems and behaviour change, so on the part of the individual and policymakers as well. We can use anthropology to address the issue of climate change in two or three key ways. Firstly, we have to understand people's cultural experiences of climate change issues and their communication patterns and styles and their trust patterns and styles to work out how to communicate the messages around climate change most effectively. I mean, oddly enough, I was just this morning looking at a wonderful video conversation between Robert Downey Jr., he of the Avengers movies, and John Kerry, the US climate envoy or the World War um, Zero um, website. And Robert Downey Jr. says during the course of that interview, you know, most people are just so put off by the idea of talking about climate because it seems scary, it makes them feel guilty, etc., etc. We have to find a way to communicate these messages really effectively to consumers and be sensitive to what is or is not blocking action by them. Just as we're having to deal with, say, the anti-vaxxers and work out why some people today are not taking vaccinations. And we can't assume that what makes sense to an American policymaker or European policymaker will make sense to consumers in other parts of the world. So that's the first way that anthropology can help. The second way that anthropology can help is through the really simple point which economics and corporate finance has forgotten in recent years, which is to look beyond the edges of your model. For so many years, Economists treated the environment as something which was external to their economic models, and corporate financiers and business people treated the environment as a footnote to what they were doing in the corporate accounts. They assumed that all of these resources were kind of free and they could just be ignored. And one of the key messages of my book is that all of these corporate tools like economic models and corporate balance sheets are really useful, but they're always defined by the limits of what you put into the models. And we have to learn to look beyond those limits just to get a sense of the context of the economic models and corporate balance sheet. 
And looking at the environment is absolutely part of the context and is forcing now a wider rethink of economics and corporate accounting. And the third way is very simple, which is that one of the messages of anthropology is that in spite of all these ugly tendencies of humans to put each other in boxes and to assume that they can just shun and ignore people who seem different from them, to treat, as Donald Trump once famously said, other countries as if they were, quote, shitholes, his word, not my word, and just shun others, that's a human tendency. But anthropology argues we can't do that. We're all interlinked in a spectrum of cultural difference and in a chain of humanity. And when the weakest link of that chain breaks, we often all suffer. And we saw that in COVID. We saw the perils of ignoring what was happening in faraway lands if you were an American policymaker or pretending you didn't really know or care what was happening in Wuhan um, because you couldn't find where it was on the map. We saw the cost of that. And climate change is going to see that played out all over again because we simply cannot afford to ignore other people who seem different from us in a world that's so tightly integrated as a global system. I think you were at um, Virtual Davos, weren't you, chairing a session on stakeholder capitalism earlier this year, and that we have seen this move, you talk about ESG in, in one of the chapters, we've seen a move from this idea of shareholder capitalism to stakeholder capitalism. Does it make you hopeful, and in the course of writing this book, do you feel hopeful about the way that we're moving Well, the good news is that I do think that the explosion in stakeholder capitalist ideas and a focus on sustainability and that ghastly acronym ESG, Environmental, Social and Governance, shows that many people instinctively recognise what I'm saying, even if they don't articulate it in terms of anthropology. The metaphor I often use to explain what I think is going on and why anthropology is useful is a bit like somebody walking through a dark wood at night with a compass. You do not want to throw away your compass. You don't want to get rid of your economic model or big data set. But if you just walk through that wood looking down at the dial all the time, you're probably going to trip over a tree root or walk into a tree. We have to raise our eyes, look around, see the context of our intellectual tools like economic models. And that attempt to get lateral vision, not tunnel vision, is one way to describe what's going on with the drive for sustainability. It's also one way to tr- talk about people getting more of an anthropological perspective in life. So I do think people recognise the need for that. That's very encouraging. I do think there's greater awareness of the need to blend social data, social computing and medical science and economic science. That's also encouraging. But the reality is that none of these instincts sit easily with the way that we structure our professional lives today because most of us are trained and encouraged to think in silos, to act with tunnel vision and to shun other people who seem different from ourselves. There's a whole chapter on the return to the office versus working from home. Um, And so I want to get a little bit into that now um, and talk about some workplace issues. So we talk about a lot about diversity and inclusion, unconscious bias in the workplace. Do you think anthropology gives us a tool to kind of overcome unconscious bias? I think anthropology gives us a tool to overcome unconscious bias for two reasons. Firstly, there is this wonderful principle in many Western political systems and some Eastern ones as well about checks and balances. And checks and balances are simply about recognising that no one institution or mindset has all the answers. If you have different institutions in a political system, if you have different perspectives and mindsets in any workplace environment, 
you're probably going to get an answer which might be a bit more messy. It might take more time to get to that answer, but it's less likely to be really, really stupid. And one of the reasons why the 2008 financial crisis happened was there simply weren't enough checks and balances in the financial system because most of the people working in financial companies in the West were all from the same mentality, training, intellect, perspective. They often happened to all be men and were very beset with groupthink and tunnel vision. Having a diversity of perspectives in any workplace is really, really important. Or to put it another way, to get some common sense into business leaders who often lack it, you need to have a common view which goes beyond just one group of people. But the second reason why anthropology can help is that because anthropology believes in the value of trying to immerse yourself in the minds of others to then flip the lens back and look at yourself with fresh clarity, they think that you can do that and think about all the things you ignore in your everyday world, the so-called social silences, the parts of our environment that we tend to overlook because they're so familiar or because we've labeled them as boring and dull and geeky. And social silences are never irrelevant. They're often crucially important for explaining how the world really works and how we reproduce the patterns we have around them for the future. So anthropology helps people to flip the lens and look back at social silences and to see all the ways that we are incredibly blind. And you can do that with um, diversity and inclusion as well, because that often helps to uncover social silences when you get other perspectives. But however you use it, that simple principle of intellectual checks and balances is one thing that anthropology can give to any workplace environment, or I should stress, any public sector or non-profit environment too. Do you think, this is a bit of a big one, have we learned the lessons from the financial crisis? I think we've learned the lessons from the financial crisis in some narrow ways, in that there won't be another crisis caused by subprime mortgages again. I predict there probably won't be a crisis caused by a shortage of capital in the regulated banking system again. So that is all very, very encouraging. Where I think we have not yet learned all the lessons is about the need to be more imaginative about forward-looking risks and to recognize that dangers and threats almost always crop up where there are silos. They're almost always found where problems fall between the cracks of existing institutions. And they're almost always found when people ignore the point in my book about the importance of cultural patterns, incentives, tribal behavior, to use the word tribal in a very loose sense, and social dynamics. And if you look at the world today and focus away from what caused the last financial crisis, which is mortgage-backed securities, and look at other areas where there could be big risks going forward, I mean, we see a similar kind of pattern of intense tribalism, groupthink, tunnel vision, having emerged in the tech sector in recent years. That's worrying. Um, I'd say we saw a propensity to ignore social silences around medicine in the run-up to 2020. Um, I wrote a column a couple of years ago saying that people were ignoring what was happening inside the geekier corners of medicine and the risks of pandemics, just as they were ignoring the geekier corners of finance before 2007. We are ignoring today some of the big ethical questions created by AI and finance. And we're frankly also ignoring many of the issues around AI in general today, because once again, technical knowledge is held in the hands of a tiny group of elite technocrats who the rest of the world tends to ignore because their activities are labelled as boring and geeky and dull and therefore not of interest to everybody else. I often say that 
One thing we learned during the 2008 financial crisis is that the biggest risks in the world are not usually hidden through any dastardly James Bond style plot. The bankers weren't concocting a wild scheme to bury what they were doing with financial innovation in 2005 and 6 into some kind of dark tunnel or something like that. Most of the problems were actually hidden in plain sight, but ignored because of the cultural patterns. And that's really the message again going forward for other threats facing the world today. Yeah, returning to this idea of homeworking and sort of the future, in the book you talk about this study looking at some of the financiers who took their Bloomberg machines home with them and then they realised that actually when they're siloed and they're not working together, they're losing out on some of that sort of cultural and social context. And I think you make the point that actually human cognition relies on us all being together. So do you see a situation in which we will have to have, I mean, we talk about hybrid working a lot, but we'll have to have some sort of interaction in the office so there won't be this continual working from home across the board? Well, I think one thing we've all learned during the pandemic is that there are upsides to working from home and being online, and there are also downsides. And in many ways, one of the reasons why the message of anthropology is so pertinent today is that we've all undergone culture shock almost wherever we live in the world, because being locked down was one type of culture shock and going back out of lockdown, back into the real world is another type of culture shock. And it means that all the practices and rhythms and rituals that we took for granted for so many years, we now have to look at afresh and ask questions about why we do things the way we do or did things the way we do and what do we want to hang on to or not. And that's an, both that's a scary thing to do, but it's also an extraordinary opportunity to question the world and rethink how we live, like anthropologists do every day. We're all amateur anthropologists in a way today. So my suspicion is, and I write about this at length in the book, is that offices will still play a role. Because what's clear from anthropologists who've studied the way that people work in the offices, um, including on bank trading floors, is that the real value of an office is not what we think it is. It isn't to do formal processes that get work done or to communicate in tiny teams, because the formal stuff, the communication in tiny trusted teams, much of that can be done online. The real value of an office is to have serendipitous encounters between different groups of people um, who are not necessarily in the same team, who bump into each other in the corridor, and to engage in lots of non-verbal, non-formal communication in the process that anthropologists call sense-making, to absorb the world around us and to basically learn as a group how to navigate through all types of non-verbal signals and communications, which are the type of signals that you can't necessarily communicate well on Zoom. So I'm not saying there aren't tremendous benefits from working from home, like less commuting time, perhaps more thinking time. In some ways, Zoom calls can have more equality of conversation because on a Zoom call, everyone is the same size in the box on a screen, and that's quite important. So that's all valuable. But there's also huge, huge downside. So the challenge for any company now is going to be how to retain the best of Zoom, but also recognize the worst of Zoom and make sure that there is actual in-person interaction. And the book gives a lot of examples of how and why this interplay between digital and real space actually plays out and why it matters so much. You also talk about sort of the difference between artificial intelligence and 
anthropological intelligence and how the two are needed to work together. Obviously, AI gets a lot of sort of bad rep about being, you know, something that automation will take over jobs and we're not really sure where where it's going. In terms of social silences, is this another area where people might have this kind of tunnel vision and not put in place things that are needed to make AI work for the good of everyone in future? Well, there's several ways that anthropology can really help think about AI. The first is the very simple, that we need to understand the context in which AI has been created and implemented And the context of the people, the tribalism of the coders who are writing AI programs really, really matters. You know, we've seen the way that you get embedded biases by the lack of diversity in the coding teams. But we also need to think about the way that AI is actually implemented and, you know, construed in terms of product development and whether the people who are implementing it have the ability to understand the social and ethical context. I mean, I would point out that Alex Karp, head of Palantir, one of the big tech companies in Silicon Valley, himself pointed out during the last year's IPO filings that we're essentially putting enormous amounts of power in the hands of a small group of computing elite, the geeks, if you like to use that word, who operate in silos, in tunnels, in ghettos, who don't necessarily want that level of power and probably aren't equipped to deal with it. So we need to address that point. But the other thing we need to recognize is that AI is an amazingly useful tool, but it basically works by amassing vast quantities of data points about our human activity as measured by cyber trails, if you like, to essentially gather all this data about the current and recent past of our activities, look for correlations, and then extrapolate into the future. And there's several problems or limitations to doing that. One is that if you're looking for data points about what we do and say, you tend to ignore social silences because they don't get recorded. What we don't say by definition doesn't get recorded. What we don't do doesn't get recorded. And that matters because social silence matters. Secondly, correlation is not causation. And you can't understand, you know, why people are doing things perfectly if you assume that everything can be judged just by looking at correlations and data points. And thirdly, context change, which means that what happened in the recent past doesn't always reflect what's going to happen in the future. And fourthly, when you add those points together, you have to recognize that culture is not a simple, clear-cut, linear pattern that can be analyzed with Newtonian physics. As Richard Feynman said, you couldn't do physics if the atoms could talk to each other. And in a sense, you know, you need to recognize that culture is an incredibly multi-layered, contradictory, puzzling, baffling entity that, as I say, exists in a spectrum of difference, not boxes, and is constantly changing in subtle ways. It's more like a river. And if you understand why this matters, you need to bear in mind, even though AI platforms can, you know, scan financial markets, look at medical data you know, design rocket ships, play go. One thing no AI platform has ever done is to invent a good joke. And the reason is twofold. Firstly, that jokes by definition define or articulate social groups because you have to be inside a group to have shared cultural assumptions to get a joke. If you're not part of that tribe, you don't get the joke. But secondly, jokes work by playing off all the different layers of our culture, including social silences, In fact, jokes actually tend to work around the unstated assumptions we have, the social silences. And that's what AI machines can't pick up and capture. And that's kind of irrelevant, you know, apart from the fact that if you're a comedian, it means you're probably going to be in a job, whatever the AI machine is. But it actually indicates the fact that AI programs are useful. 
but they're not the answer to everything. They have limitations. And so AI needs a second type of AI, anthropology intelligence, to work most effectively in the world today. Love this idea that we'll never replace physical books. Do you feel like there are certain things that will always exist that won't get overtaken by digital? Well, one of the things that comes out of anthropology research is that although humans, you know, love computers and digitization and internet, we also love physical sensory experiences. Paper is one of those physical sensory experiences, which one day maybe it will disappear. We, you know, never say never, but it has been retained a lot longer than anybody with a narrow engineering perspective might have expected. Um, And in fact, I tell the story in the book about Intel and how the wonderful um, engineers in Intel tend to assume through using their own logic that paper would disappear soon, spent a lot of time designing for the paperless office. And the anthropologists that Intel very wisely hired to help um, them do their research pointed out that actually paper is a kind of stubborn cultural artifact whose value isn't just measured in um, expediency. So I suspect paper is one of those things, a bit like gold, that people hang on to for reasons that look irrational to others, but actually are very rational when you try and look at the world through people's eyes and recognize that value isn't always found in an economic model or simply a physics equation. So paper, I think, is something that people will hang on to. Do you have any books on your reading list that you're wanting to share? I'll just highlight a couple of really great books I've read recently. One is Um, Heather McGee's A Some of Us, which is about racism um, in America. And although the message is focused primarily in America, I think it has wide um, relevance. And she basically points out that racism and prejudice doesn't just hurt the people who are victims of that. It hurts the person who's being racist too, because they miss opportunities to learn about the world. And that dovetails with a lot of what I've been writing about in my book. Um, Another great book I'd highlight is Noise, by Danny Kahneman and Cass Sunstein and others, points out all the messiness of the um, ways that we make decisions today. He talks about noise in a different way that I talk about noise and silence, but it's a very, very relevant book in many ways. And the other book that I would highlight, just because I think it's quite relevant right now coming out of the crisis and the lockdown, is a book by an anthropologist called Simon Roberts, which is basically about how we really make decisions and the importance of non-verbal communication and the fact that we all have a very embodied experience and our embodied experience in companies or everyday life is very, very important. It's called The Power of Not Thinking. And, you know, our embodied experiences have often been ignored during the Zoom period. But as we go back into the physical world, thinking actively about our embodied experiences is very, very important. That's so true. You can't read the room on Zoom, can you? No, one of the stories that I also tell in my own book is that of the IETF, the Internet Engineering Task Force, which are basically the computing engineers, if you like, the geeks who design the architect of the Internet. And it's very interesting because when they get together and make crucial decisions about the architecture of the Internet, they don't do so by taking sort of votes on a computer system or anything like that. They indicate whether they agree with a certain idea about the internet architecture um, by humming yay or humming nay. It's like a sort of Buddhist chant. And it's a very messy, amateur, kind of seemingly primeval way to take decisions. But they love it because it lets them read the room. And when they went into lockdown, you know, even though these are the computer geeks who built the internet and should be better placed than anybody to use the internet tools to do their business, they all said in surveys, or almost all of them, that they wanted to keep the humming 
and get back to in-person meetings because they know the value of being human in a digital world. It's a bit like choirs, apparently, they sort of sync their heartbeats when they're singing together. So they're almost singing as one. I wanted to ask about tips for leaders to sort of put on their anthrovision goggles, if you like. Yeah. Are there any sort of simple takeaways? One of them, you know, I think you mentioned is sort of having this childlike approach. It's almost like Shoshin, the Japanese concept of beginner's mindset. You know, are there things that you would recommend that leaders do to try and have a more anthropological view of the world? Well, to get out of academic jargon, I would suggest that leaders really employ two key ideas. One is checks and balances. Make sure that whatever you're doing in your daily life involves talking to a wide range of people inside your group and getting a diversity of views, because that's one of the greatest guards against stupidity that you can find. Secondly, I'd say think about that fishbowl, because one of the perils for leaders is that as they rise up in your corporate organisation, they tend to increasingly get trapped inside a mental and sometimes physical fishbowl, particularly true after a year in which we've all been trapped in lockdown with people who are just like us, aka our social pods. And, you know, if you're successful as a leader, the danger of being trapped in your fishbowl um, and not seeing, go back to that metaphor from China, in the water around you because you're a fish, becomes greater and greater and greater. So finding whatever tool you can to jump even temporarily out of your fishbowl in the physical real world, if you can, you know, going to a different department, talking to a different person, trying to ask your most junior employee what they think. If you can't travel physically, then trying to do it online in cyberspace by actually exploring a different point of view, listening to what people are saying about your company on Glassdoor, trying to get external critics perspectives is absolutely crucial, not just because you need to understand what how other people think in a world that's globally integrated. You know, we're all exposed to each other. Contagion is an ever-present threat and not just medical contagion, but other contagions too. So we need to understand other people, but also because jumping out of your fishbowl is the best way to understand yourself and all your weaknesses and your blind spots and the risks that are bubbling in the social silences. So checks and balances and fishbowls, those are the two key metaphors that I think people should think about. That was author Jillian Tett speaking to my lovely colleague Kate Whiting. Big thanks to the two of them for joining us on the World Economic Forum Book Club podcast. Please subscribe to this podcast and best of all, leave us a review. Don't forget to join our book club on Facebook, which is coming up on 200,000 followers. And to discuss podcasts, please join our podcast club, also on Facebook. And of course, please search out our sister podcasts, Radio Davos, and Meet the Leader wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of the Book Club podcast was presented by my colleague Kate Whiting and myself, Beatrice DiCaro. Production was with Gareth Nolan, editing with Plitia Sala, and thanks to our podcast editor, Robin Pomeroy. We'll be back soon, but for now, thanks to you for listening and goodbye.